Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 13, and I would remind you again, as we often talk about here, uh, this is the Word of God. And because God is eternal, His Word is as well. Uh, It's always useful and, in fact, wonderfully written so that it's designed for you, uh, as well as even uh, Sean mentioned the original audience that it was written to. How marvelous our God is. Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. (laughs) The disciples rebuked the people. When Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. 
And Lord, we do ask that you would give us your spirit that we might understand and believe in Jesus, in whose name we pray. I tell you, one of my greatest fears, I know it's an odd thing to talk about in a sermon, and I don't mean that in the sense of like things happening to my children or things like that, but I mean like my, one of my greatest personal fears. There is, I think, uh, for my own personal self, there's no thing that I'm more genuinely terrified of than a tragic lack of self-awareness. Right, there's, I, I don't think for myself a thing that I am more fearful of for me than this, this tragic lack of, of understanding of who I am, how I've been made, what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are, what I'm really like. Now, that's me. That's one of my things that I'm I'm very concerned about. It's certainly a struggle that I have. It's particularly interesting that to have that struggle kind of currently in an American culture that loves a lack of self-awareness. We love it. In fact, actually, we we worship it and we encourage it as much as possible. We love the the kind of comedy figure on every one of those singing competitions, the person who genuinely cannot sing and has no idea that they're there to be the joke. Right? Everybody loves that figure, the person that everyone thinks is serious, but you really know they're not. In fact, actually, we've been, we've been going, taking that kind of one step further as a, as a culture, as a nation, as a community, uh, where we've been kind of training our children to say, look, you can, you can be whatever believe, you believe you are. Right? Whatever is taking place inside of you, your, your feelings, that interior landscape, that, that's ultimate reality. You can be whatever you want to be. Problem is, my feelings are not reality. <laughs> They're just not. I mean, I may feel like I'm a cauliflower tomorrow, but it won't make me any more of a cauliflower. It won't be. It, just, it won't. It can't. Reality exists externally to me, and I have to engage that external reality, but our current culture is drinking from this kind of interior monologue, this interior worship so much that we love this kind of tragic figure of the person who believes a reality so much that perhaps it might eventually come true. I love how you can see really how kind of messed up our culture is, that that's become the hero in the story. When if you actually rewind just hundreds of years or so, like the emperor's new clothes, that was always the buffoon, the fool. Right? The, the hero in today's children's stories or in today's children's movies or the, 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 the child that believes something that no one else sees. And they believe it hard enough and they believe it firmly enough and with enough passion, enough zeal that eventually it becomes true. And then everybody figures out how special that child is. Well, friends, that's the emperor's new clothes. It's the modern retelling of it. The emperor's new clothes was about a man who believed something that contradicted with reality. 
And rather than being the hero of the story for making it come true, he was the buffoon, the the one that was ridiculed, the fool that everybody laughed at. He was the joke. Unfortunately, so much of our current culture is a joke. Encouraging people to believe in realities that just don't exist. Because honestly, it's not your perception that ultimately matters. It's not your feelings that ultimately matter. It's God's perception that matters, and it's God's feelings that matter. That's what we run into in chapter 19 here with the rich young man, rich young ruler, and other uh, kind of classic ways to know it. A man with a staggering level of a lack of self-awareness. No concept of who he is. In fact, he is somebody who would fit so well today walking the the halls of our high schools and our colleges and our places of industry and places of commerce. A man who believes in his heart one thing and believes it with all of his might. Well, except for the niggling doubts. Until he runs into Jesus. You see, that's how it begins with a simple question in verse 16. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, okay, let's put kind of categories here to help us think about this one. We're going to look into this first section. How we as listeners today, we must be on guard against what this young man does. He reduces salvation. He reduces interaction with God. He reduces spirituality to a purely horizontal engagement, right? To a purely horizontal endeavor, a purely horizontal reality. All right, so he goes to Jesus and asks a question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And already you can kind of uh, see problems. You know the problems, really, if you've seen the end of the story, the problems with his question. He's connecting very clearly a cause and effect. If there is a cause, it produces a very clear and very obvious effect. The cause would be my good deeds. What good deeds must I do in order to produce the effect of eternal life a good spiritual condition, a blessed life. In fact, actually, again, this is a very kind of postmodern question. This is the kind of question that you could easily, again, see being discussed on the news or being discussed in our university classrooms. It wouldn't be verbalized in ancient Jewish Jewish vocabulary the way that this is. What must I do to have eternal life? We would hear it discussed with how we might live and be a part of the culture in which we live. How how, how do we participate in a woke culture? How do do we participate in a cancel culture? How do we participate? How are we supposed to live and find spiritual nourishment 
That's ultimately the heart of his question is, what are the things I have to do to be spiritually rich? And again, you can see already the the dilemma is that he's defining spirituality as a purely horizontal relationship, a, a relationship that takes place between himself and perhaps others. What are the things that I have to do to get myself right so that I can exist within my own self, within my own spirit, within my own brain and be okay? Or perhaps if I have to do them, perhaps they'll engage with other people. What are the things I have to do. Well, Jesus, interestingly, again, I think sniffs this out immediately. Smartest, wisest man to ever live. Why do you ask me what's, what's good? Why do you ask me about what is good? And interestingly here, again, he's, he's figured out the man's problem. The man has already kind of verbalized this in the, his, the very nature of his question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Presuming he's able to do good deeds. And uh, interestingly, there's only really one way you can ever presume that you do good deeds. And that's ultimately to have some sort of kind of comparative theology. To say, hey, you know what? I can look at my neighbors and my neighbors are losers. Whatever neighbor that is, the person you run into the store, which the person you judge when how they drive and weave all across the road while they're texting, whatever person it is that you dislike, you look at them and say, hey, look, that person doesn't live the good life. I'm living better than that person, and that's what my definition of good has become. This man is using kind of this uh, comparative morality to present himself as one who is a good man. You know why I'm a good man? Because I'm more disciplined than my neighbors, because I work harder than my neighbors, because I cut my lawn more frequently than my neighbors, because my house is not falling apart, I've maintained it, because I have a steady job, because of, because of, because of, because of whatever you want to put in there. Jesus acknowledges this is part of the problem and goes at the heart of the matter. Well, what do you say? Why are you asking me about what is good? In fact, actually, good is at its definition, not a horizontal definition, it's a vertical definition. There's only one who is good, it's God himself. In fact, actually, if we're going to be really technical, we could kind of very clear in our definition, goodness is simply a description of who God is. So when we talk about things being good here on earth, it's minimally, it's, it's a, a small kind of picture reflection of who God is. It's the kind of way that First John would deal with this in love. He, he says God is not loving, God is love. He is love. It, it's a reflection of his nature. It's his very character. It's who God is. God is not good to other people per se. God is goodness. All definitions of goodness are drawn from him. So this idea of being comparative in our understanding of goodness is very problematic because I don't get the privilege of comparing my goodness against yours. I have to compare my goodness against God's. That gets to be problematic. 
You see, the man here is not doing that. He's not uh, bringing any sort of vertical relationship in. He's not thinking about God himself in any way, instead just considering his own situation. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one that's good. But in order to showcase this, in order to put the silliness of your thinking on full display, let's just have a thought experiment. Perfect people go to heaven. All Jews would have known that. It was from the very foundation of the Garden of Eden. If you live perfectly with no sin, with no sin nature, with no sin nature inherited from Adam himself, anyone who lived a perfect life deserves heaven. And so he throws that out for the man. This is a trap set for the man perfectly to see his thinking kind of exposed and written large. Well, if you want to to enter life this way through goodness, well, you can keep the commandments. This is the point where the gentleman should have been like, well, I'm in trouble. This is the point where the gentleman should have gone, well, you know, I haven't done that. This is the point where the young gentleman should have been kind of sniffed it out and said, well, yeah, see, here's the issue is I'm not the best of guys. I mean, I'm better than everybody else, but I'm not perfect. But again, tragic lack of self-awareness. He bites on it. Which commands? Oh, man. This is the point probably you got to think at least one of the disciples is sitting there going, I can't believe he just said that. Is this really happening? Really? Okay. Jesus answers. Which ones? Well, okay, sure, fair enough, all right. Shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, shall love your neighbors yourself. Five of the six on the second table, slightly out of order. With a capstone, love your neighbor as yourself. This is where, again, you would think a man who is fairly wise and understanding of any sort of kind of comparative relationship with God Almighty is going to run into problems. But if you're comparing yourself to those around you, well, it's perhaps much easier to be found innocent. So what does the man say? Verse 20, this is one of the most amazing answers in all of the Bible. I absolutely just love it. All these I've kept! I love it. One of the other gospel writers has it. I've kept them since I was young. That one's just, that, that's too good. Not only did you do it, you've done it your entire life. You've never done any of these things. Oh, man. Oh, man. Just go ask your parents. Really? Every parent has stories of how their, chi- you know, their children and their kids were um, evil in some form or fashion. Well, the man's question, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Look, I've, I've done these relationships. I've done these uh, commandments. I've maintained a, a proper relationship horizontally with everybody. I've never done anything wrong because I'm better than them. Because I'm more good than they are. Because while they are sinners, I, I, I don't really do that. Marvelous lack of self awareness. The interesting thing here, though, is that this is where we begin to kind of realize that the man is lying. He's lying to Jesus, certainly. We know that. 
But this is the point actually where we begin to realize that the man is lying to himself. Because you see, if, he man, if the man here actually really believed that he had never sinned in any fashion, this conversation isn't taking place because he wouldn't be anxious about it in the first place. All right, Matthew makes sure the behold is there at the first kind of jump in. The behold is to, it's the exclamation point. It's the behold is to get your attention. It's ah, right? This man kind of shows up. He's there. He peers on the scene and he's ready to ask a question. He's intense and he's eager. He's anxious because even he knows he's lying. And again, and I love this. He, he is such a beautiful illustration of what any human looks like apart from the saving ministry of Jesus Christ. This is, this is what the heart of an, an unbeliever, it's what your heart looks like apart from Jesus, it's what my heart looks like apart from Jesus, what every human who is sinful looks like apart from Jesus. A person who is more comfortable showing themselves grace and saying their sins are not a big deal than other people's sins, to think of themselves as good people while they think of other people as bad people, but in the back of their mind and when they go to bed at night and when their head is on their pillow or when they're discouraged to have that quiet, niggling doubt in the back of their mind saying, you know you're lying. You know it. You know you're lying. You know it. And the reason is really largely because of what the man is doing here is you realize he's he's having a conversation about what he's been able to do with his hands. It's all external to him. I've been able to do these things. Interestingly, Jesus leaves out the one command that specifically deals with the internal actions. I love that. This is, Jesus has set him up beautifully. It's easy for him to say, look, I haven't, I haven't murdered anybody because I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't murdered anybody. It's easy for him to say, I, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't, I haven't done that. Easy for him to say, I haven't stolen. Maybe he hasn't actually actively taken something from somebody else. Perhaps his parents died early. He's been raised an orphan. Maybe, I don't know the rest of the story. Maybe some of these things he hasn't actually done physically with his hands externally. The point that he's completely missing is that Jesus is ultimately getting to is that the law is not ultimately about the hands only. It's about the heart. That's the real reason why the man is so anxious is that Jesus can say, go do all of these commands, and the guy can say, well, I've done them, but I don't feel any better about it because I know what my heart is like. I know the wicked desires that come out. I know how angry I get with people when they act stupid, if only they wouldn't be so stupid. I know the the evil longings that I have, the, the hateful things that I've wanted to do. I know all of the wickedness that bubbles out from the inside. That's why the man is so incredibly anxious. And friends, this is United States of America 2021. Right here. People who actively are committing themselves to believe in something that's completely false. False. 
external reality does not match the interior landscape. And choosing our inner feelings, our interior reality is the ultimate reality. All the while knowing it's a lie. What do you do with that? Well, Jesus actually is marvelous in showing this again. He's marvelous at how surprised his actions are. What he does here is to show that the word of God is the mirror to show us our shortcomings. He he is the word of God incarnate. The word of God is the mirror to show us our shortcomings. See, the man here has run himself into problems because he's only been looking at two things. He's been looking at himself and he's been looking at other people. And when you only look at yourself and other people, it's very easy for you to get full of yourself. It's very easy to get low on other people. It's very easy to think of them as, as wicked, foolish buffoons and easy to think of yourself as the greatest thing that's been ever, you know, ever been made in God's green earth. Because your mind is only being filled with you and them. The great solution, the great remedy... The medicinal treatment needed is to get the word of God and to begin to think about you and to think about them and to think about God himself in light of his word. And Jesus does that with uh, verse 21, just an amazing kind of quick one-off, how wise he is. To in just a moment take this young man's sin and to expose it like on a gigantic billboard on I-77. Jesus says to him, well, okay, that's fine. Maybe you have kept all these things. He hasn't. If you wish to be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. (laughs) Sell all your things, give a bunch of it to the poor and follow Jesus. Pretty easy. Now, I certainly don't think this is a command that's intended for all Christians and that private property is evil. I think that's, that's a wrong understanding of what's going on here. I think instead what Jesus is doing is he's showcasing to the man, look, you've been trying to, to manage the commands of God as only external actions. You've been trying to deal with the Ten Commandments. You've been trying to deal with the law as just actions that you can control. And honestly, if you're disciplined enough, many of them you can control. But one thing that you can never control, apart from the Spirit of God, the one thing you can never control is your heart. You just can't do it. So Jesus here in this short command exposes the man's heart. Look, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be holy, boom, here's your sin. Give away that idol that you've been secretly clinging to. Give away that idol that you've been worshiping in private. Give away that idol that has been constantly fueling your uh, self-centeredness, pride, and uh, self-aggrandizement. Give it away. And instead, place Jesus as Lord in your heart. And in this brief moment, Jesus exposes to the man that, look, by the way, you actually haven't been perfect all along. Your heart's been the issue. But on top of that, now which one are you going to choose? Verse 22. The young man heard this, and he went away sad 
for he had great possessions. Friends, this guy's probably the kind of guy that you'd love to have on your HOA board, right? He's probably the great neighbor. He's the kind of guy that you'd love to work with next to you because he's you know, going to be adamant about not cheating you. He's going to be probably a great boss because he's going to, you know, he, he'd be a moral guy. You're the kind of person that you look at and go, yeah, that's a good guy. I like that guy. But interestingly, as 22 records, he walks away headed to hell. Because he has sin and it's a problem for him. It's always been a problem for him. But the problem has not ultimately been his hands. The problem has ultimately been his heart. And Jesus has exposed his heart. His heart loves money. And suddenly he's presented with a cost that's too high to pay. And he walks away. My friends, I um, I often speak about the desire for and pray for this a lot for you and for myself and others is the desire to learn the easy way. The desire to learn the easy way is to, to hear things the first time and to learn the lesson and to put it into practice. I hate it when I have to or when you have to or anybody else has to learn the hard way. This man is going through the emotional hard way where the Lord of life looks him in the eye and takes his innermost sin and makes it public for everybody in his presence to see it and then records it in multiple gospels so that for all eternity people can consider his particular sin. And it's easy for us, again, if we're only going to consider kind of the horizontal element, it's easy for us to sit here and judge the man, isn't it? To say, well, I mean, of course, he was the bad guy, right? That's the whole point. He's the bad guy. He gets what he deserves. And in doing so, that might actually miss the point for us. You realize, apart from Jesus, his heart is no different than yours or mine. We all have those idols that we've secretly been kind of clutching away, that we've been trying to hide. And honestly, I'm going to be honest with you, many of you don't hide it as well as you think. Many of you, you have that idol. You might even know what it is. And you think, well, then nobody's ever going to figure this one out. We already know. Some of you, it's really obvious. Some of you, it's not. But God knows it all. Brothers and sisters, instead of hiding it until it's exposed... Might we be those that would be people of repentance instead? Jesus, in verse 23, ups the ante in what is perhaps one of the most terrible verses for the United States ever. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty 
will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, It's not because God hates rich people. In fact, actually, the only reason they're rich is because he's given them the money. The only reason they're rich is because he's given them the resources. He doesn't hate them. He's actually blessed them. No, instead, what Jesus understands here is that uh, the more resources you have, the more assets you have available, the easier it is for you to become preoccupied with those resources as assets, the easier it is for you to be distracted by those resources and assets, the easier it is for you to try to use those resources and assets to buy yourself out of difficulty. The richer you are, the harder it is to get to the kind of, you know, bottom of the barrel, so to speak. The richer you are, the harder it is to hit rock bottom. You can buy yourself out of it. I mean, you realize the vast majority of the world right now is one case of the flu away from being at rock bottom. Their income is so low. One case of the flu, and they hit desperation. We've had two cases of the flu in my house this week. I'm still here. We're fine. Haven't even had to call help. We're doing all right. Why? Because we have resources that we can manage those problems. We we, we don't hit the point of desperation until we've fallen really far. I mean, it's the point that Jesus is getting at here. Say, look, it's really difficult for the rich people to become Christians because honestly, it's really difficult for rich people to admit they're needy because they have enough money to buy themselves out of it. They just don't need anything. At least not the things that money can't buy. And they can buy enough toys to cover over the things that money can't buy. Jesus then gives an illustration here. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is literally what he means. He's actually talking about needle and thread, and he's talking about the big disgusting animal that likes to spit. That's what he's talking about. Uh, It's easier for you to take one of the largest things that they would have been familiar with, a camel, and to try to fit it through one of the smallest things they would have been familiar with, the eye of a needle. It's easier to get that through that than it is for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven. Which is a slightly disturbing thought to think about the fact that we're currently sitting in one of you know, the richest towns in a very rich state in the richest country in world history. It's hard. Because we don't see how much we need anything. In a world in which need is written larger, it becomes a bit more obvious. This is why in verse 25 you get the disciples with the most honest question. I absolutely love what they do. They're so disturbed by this. They're so disturbed by the fact that you can't be good enough to go to heaven. They're so upset that no level of morality can ultimately get you into heaven. They ask Jesus, who in the world is going to go to heaven then? If your sins are a problem and they keep you out of heaven, and perhaps your resources, the very thing that you would use as a solution, that's going to keep you out of heaven. If the problem keeps you out of heaven and the solution keeps you out of heaven, who on earth is going to be able to go to heaven? 
Who on earth is going to be able to go to heaven? How do you go to heaven if your money can't do it, if your goodness can't do it, if nothing you have to offer can take you to heaven? How can you get to heaven? And friends, this is what I think we're watching happen in our current culture, left, right, and center. It's been an old book title, but we're amusing ourselves to death. We're we're literally trying to find every sort of entertainment that we can possibly do to to shut up the voice in our head saying, I need to go to heaven, but how? I'm not a good person in my heart, and I have to admit that. I have enough money to occupy my mind, and I have to admit that. But deep creeping in the back of my brain is the anxiety that tells me someday I'm going to die. And I better have a solution. Why do you think our nation has handled COVID so badly? You ever thought about that? It's not because it's political. I hate to break it to you. If you're on the right, it's not because of the Democrats. If you're Democrats, it's not because of the Republicans. That's not why we've handled it poorly as a nation. We've handled it poorly as a nation because for the last hundred years, we've been doing everything we possibly can to ignore the fact that death exists. And suddenly, a big virus has showed up that has challenged that assumption. And people are having to think about the fact that, you know what, I'm going to die. Might be today, might be tomorrow, I don't know. Who goes to heaven? How do you go to heaven? Jesus gives two answers. Interestingly, is the first answer is actually not in this passage. The first answer that Jesus gives is actually in the previous verses, the ones that I skipped. They are always coupled with the rich young ruler. The introduction to the rich young ruler is always Jesus' interaction with the children, which is absolutely marvelous, the contrast that you have. The rich young ruler is a man who is uh, he's clean, he's intelligent, he's informed, he's sophisticated, he's well put together, he is a contributing member of society, he is a good citizen, he is everything that you could possibly want. He's the kind of guy that you would want your daughter to marry. And he leaves the end of the passage going to hell. What kind of people go to heaven? Well, Jesus actually shows in verse 13. Children were brought to him. Mark makes a bigger point of this than Matthew does, but to highlight that the the word here is not just the term for children, it's the term for little children, it's babies. It's little ones. Uh, If you you know Spanish, you add like Ito, or uh, Portuguese, Ino, Ronaldinho, he's little Ronaldo. Uh, here's the same word, it's the the little, little children. People were bringing their babies to Jesus so that as a king of a kingdom, he would bless these children and mark them as being part of the kingdom of God. Hey, would you take my baby and give them the blessings of the kingdom of God? And the disciples are finally like, look, you can't do that. We don't know what these kind of people are. They're babies. They're not important enough. And Jesus is like, please stop talking. You've totally missed the point. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. Why? Because these are the kind of people that get the kingdom of heaven. Not the rich young ruler who's going to show up in the next section. 
Because the rich young ruler, as put together as he is, as skilled as he is, as intelligent as he is, as moral as he is, as excellent of a citizen as he is, he is filled with self. And these little babies are recipients. When this little baby, these little babies, when they meet Jesus and are blessed by him, what what do they do to earn that blessing? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They receive what is given to them. It's poured out upon them. It's the Lord just placing his blessing on them out of generosity and kindness and care. It's not because they're good. It's not because they're sinless. It's not because, you know, they're more moral. It's not because they're more educated. It's because God loves them and blesses them and they receive his blessing. Jesus explains it differently in verse 26. It's impossible with man to go to heaven. You cannot human your way into heaven. The only way to heaven is in Jesus and Jesus alone. With God, all things are possible. We need a better solution to get to heaven than being a good person because we're not good people. We need a better solution to get to heaven than buying ourselves out of our problems because that only lasts as long as you're alive. You can't take it with you. Your money perishes with you. We need a better solution and ultimately, friends, the solution is this, that Jesus died for sinners was raised for sinners, ascended to glory for sinners, and freely gives his forgiveness to those sinners. Cost him absolutely everything, cost us absolutely nothing. Friends, this is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you cannot save yourself. You are not good enough, but Jesus does. And beyond that, actually, he freely offers that salvation out and says, here, just take it. It's freely given. Uh, You just believe, receive it by faith. I understand that that's a really scary thing. I mean, if we're going to be honest, we all like to be in control of our lives. I like to be in control of my life. The great reality is, again, that little voice in our head tells us we know we're lying. We're never actually in charge of our lives. But for so many, the big hang-up with the gospel is this idea that I will no longer be in control. And friends, that is 100% correct. You never were in control, but after you, you know Jesus, you never will be. But I love how Jesus is so kind in coupling one major idea almost every time he makes that like staggering offer of you have to be done with self. You have to receive Jesus on his terms and his terms alone, not your terms, his terms. He couples one major idea with it almost every time, and I love this. 27, Peter, <laughs> I love Peter, Peter's fantastic, right? Um, Jesus, we kind of did that, right? Like, we, we left all of our income, we're really poor right now, we don't know where our next meal is going to come from, and we're following you. We're literally doing the thing that you told the rich young ruler to do. Does that count for us for anything? Great question. Jesus responds with something, uh, I think, more shocking than what even they were expecting. Friends, whatever you would sacrifice for Christ, he pays back a millionfold. That's the short version of his answer. Whatever you have to give up for Jesus, he gives back a millionfold. 
look, guys, you, you, right now, these disciples, they're all, you know, not respected men. They're about to be persecuted by their uh, local governing uh, authorities. In fact, almost all of them are going to be martyred in terrible, terrible fashions. They're going to die awfully. What does Jesus say? All of the suffering is going to be worth it because what happens when you die? You'll be blessed. And in fact, actually, not just you 12, uh, the 12th that will replace Judas in verse 28, but 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, everyone will receive, and here you get very clear, hundredfold. Some of the early manuscripts, manifold, multitude. It, it, the math is too big. God blesses above and beyond. Right? I love to say it this way. His interest rate is the best interest rate in creation. Whatever you give up, he gives back better. I know in a room this size, there are some of us in here that are saying, look, I want to grow, but I am terrified with what God will do with my life. I love how this is the answer he gives you. Look, I'll do, I'll do a better job with it than you will. I mean, what's the best you can do? Store up treasures for yourself on earth that perish with you when you die? What are they going to do, stuff your coffin? Instead, God blesses a hundredfold even into the life to come into eternal life. He rewards his people generously. And the first reward that he gives is Jesus himself. So that today, we have him and we need not wait. I make two applications and end with these two. First, if you find yourself in that situation where you don't know Jesus, do not wait, friends. Do not tarry. If COVID's taught us anything, we don't know when our time is up. Don't wait. And if you're scared, that's okay. Tell him that. He knows. Secondly, if you are a child of God already, if you already are a Christian, I suspect, as I mentioned, many of us in here, we, we wish to grow. But the idea of growth is just a little bit too painful because we know it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us our time. It might cost us, in some cases, our money. It'll cost us kind of being able to do what we want to do whenever we want to do it, our freedom. One, I would just say to you, remember Jesus is a little bit bigger than that. A little bit. A lot bit better than that. But if that's not sufficient enough, and again, how, how generous our God is. If the knowledge of Christ is not sufficient enough to be kind of fuel for your growth, maybe these closing verses will be to say that Jesus rewards a hundredfold anything you lose for his sake. Whatever you give up, that's it. Now, I let you know a little secret. I'm banking my entire life on that concept. My entire life. That every bit of energy that's spent here, every tear that's shed for this church, every sleepless night, every bit of brokenheartedness, that it's all worth it for the reward. 
how generous our God is. Father, might it be that we would be those that are not filled with self, but filled with Jesus. Lord, thank you that you give so much more generously than we do, and that your interest rate is better than any bank here can pay. Oh, Lord, bless us in Christ, we ask for his name's sake. Amen.